0: What's up, everybody? This is John Odermatt, the host of Felony Friday. And before we get rolling into today's show, I want to take a quick moment to talk about coffee. That's right, coffee. The Lions of Liberty, we have partnered up with Anarcho Coffee, and we are selling our very own coffee. It's called the Morning Roar. It is a medium dark roast that has cupping notes of lemon, lime, caramel, black pepper, and brown sugar. It is delicious. You can pick up some of this coffee by going to lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. We have a, a way there on your first purchase. You can get 10% off, but if you join the Pride for $10 and up, you can actually get more than that. You can get 15% off every single order. Buy some coffee. Support the Lions of Liberty. Support another great libertarian company as well. Everybody wins. lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt felons, friends, and freedom lovers. Yes, you too, freedom lovers. Gather around the table, gather around the speaker, gather around your iPhone or whatever you're listening on. This is another episode of Felony Friday, the only show out there that focuses every single week on exposing the injustice that people in this country, the United States of America, suffer. And also we talk about injustice around the world too, but mostly in the United States of America. And also... In addition to focusing on injustice, we bring you stories of individuals who have overcome tremendous obstacles, tremendous odds in their fight to add value to society, to contribute, to create a life uh, after prison where they are able to give back and help to change the system that wronged them. Today's episode of Felony Friday is a fantastic one. I'm going to tell you a bit about it in just a minute. Before I do that, just want to remind you, this is one of three shows we have on Felony Friday. We kick off every week with a show on Monday hosted by Mark Clare. It's our flagship program where Mark interviews leaders in the libertarian movement. And every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture comedy, and liberty. You can get all three of these shows delivered to your fancy little listening device that you carry around in your pocket. Some people refer to it as a cell phone. I like to refer to it as my social media scrolling device. But you can access our (laughs) podcast You can have those automatically delivered to your phone just by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, whatever your favorite podcasting app is. I don't know what it is. I can't read your mind. So just go click subscribe. You'll get each of our shows delivered to your phone. Device. Today's episode of Felony Friday got a fantastic show. Have Warren Stellman. He's an author. He's a guy who's been to prison. He's got a crazy story he's going to tell. So crazy that he wrote a book about it. So this episode is 181. That means the show notes page can be found at slash FF181. Let's jump right into today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Warren Stellman. He is the author. Of a book called Guerrilla Tango from Businessman to Convicted Felon and Surviving the U.S. Prison System. Back in 2013, Warren was sentenced to 75 months in prison for participating in a Dominican based telemarketing fraud scheme. Uh, Warren's book shares about his journey all the way through his hellish conditions that he suffered down in. uh, The Dominican in uh, that third third world prison system down there, and then 14 months in a Supermax uh, MCC in New York, and four more years in the uh, U.S. uh, federal prison system. So Warren, welcome to Felony Friday.
1: Uh, Hello, and thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Well, I'm sure it's great to be out of prison, all you've been through, you know, Uh, When did you get out? How many years ago did you get out?
1: Yeah, no, I got released a year and a half ago, January of uh, 18, 2018. Okay.
0: And you're up in Canada now,
1: right? I'm in Montreal, yeah, in Canada.
0: So before we get into your story, because, I mean, obviously you wrote a book about it. It's a crazy story. Lots Lots of things happen. We'll get into some of those. But just to sort of set the table, set the stage so people get to know a little bit about you, um, if you can just kind of rewind the clock and talk a little bit about what your life was like before, you know, shit hit the fan and, and stuff got crazy, but before, you know, anything in the Dominican or any of that. So what, what was going on in, in your life at, at that point in time?
1: I, listen, I grew up in Montreal and, I, you know, I went to uh, school, I went to university, I got into business at a young age. I, I was, uh, you know, pretty successful um at an earlier age and i you know i got married when i was 29 my wife and i had four children and uh you know life was pretty good you know living a nice life and um in my 40s things started to unravel my late 40s and i was heavily invested in a business that ultimately failed i described this in my book and uh Along with that sort of um, downward spiral, mm-hmm. I began drinking heavily. I never drank. I never, you know, did drugs or drank. Or, and it started with, um, you know, drinking when I was out entertaining customers for business, mm-hmm. you know, with wine. And it, it sort of, uh, it, you know, I, so, I sort of, it gradually got worse and worse. So it was wine, you know, with, you know, wine, a glass of wine to fall asleep. And then it was wine with everything. And then ultimately vodka and with the collapse of the business and ultimately led me down the road to get involved in this, you know, shameful, you know, in my opinion, then now despicable sweepstakes fraud where, you know, we stole money from people. Uh, uh, Something I, you know, forever, you know, carry the shame of doing. And I was involved in that with my wife. So we went down to the dominican republic because somebody we knew was running this sweepstakes scam. we didn't know we were going there for that initially but we found out when we got there that that's what it was what,
0: what did you think you were going there for
1: uh initially i thought it was to sell timesharing okay yeah
0: so so did you when you say you went there so you actually moved to the dominican Republic? No, i mean
1: we got up it was kind of a you know, it wasn't a, a absolutely permanent thing, but I was going down there to try it out, you know, try doing something. I mean, I had lost all my money. My life was in disarray. My wife and I actually got separated, but still we both went down obviously in the pursuit of money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we got there, we still lived separately, but we started, uh, we started doing, you know, what we did. And, uh, you know, we did it for, for a bit, and um, at some point, I understood my drinking was so out of control when I was living there, mm-hmm. it, was, it was like shockingly out of control. And so I started to realize that I was, you know, I was going to die if I didn't do something about Shocking, it.
0: Shocking out of control, meaning you're like just drinking constantly to, to that point? Listen, or-
1: man, I was waking up in the morning, like no exaggeration first thing in the morning, it didn't matter what time, six, six 37. The first thing I did was go to the freezer and start drinking vodka. And I drank all day long and all night long. And it wasn't a day that went by for a number of years where I didn't drink 40 ounces of vodka. I mean, I was at, I was at the brink of death. I, one of my kids showed me a picture that was taken back then before I quit drinking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was, I mean, it, you know, I looked like a monster. So, uh, A few things happened living in Santo Domingo, you know, it's a foreign country and a few things happened that were, you know, I was uh, dangerously close to having serious problems. I mean, that could have, you know, I could have ended up dying. And I realized, listen, I, you know, I can't live like this. My kids were almost at the point of they weren't going to talk to me anymore, uh, fighting with my wife, you know, uh, committing this fraud that we were committing. It was all too much. And I said, I can't, and so I flew back to Montreal in 2010, and I went to AA, and I quit drinking cold turkey, and I never you know, drank again after that. Wow. So you know, I tell the story in a book. I don't want to give it all away, but um, you know, ultimately, when I was sober, I was more capable once again, and I started pursuing other, you know, more legi- not more, legitimate you know, business ventures, and I started making money again, and things were tracking but then, in 2012, you know the shit hit the fan. So, like probably a year and a half after we stopped doing what we were doing, uh, we got arrested. My wife and I both.
0: Was and, Was there any hint, you know, in that year and a half, or any time before that,
1: that I mean, you, thought, it, you yeah. thought
0: you could get caught for it? Or did I mean, did you? Uh, I mean, obviously, you talk about your drinking, how out of control it was, so you probably weren't thinking properly at the time. But yeah. did you did you understand like the you know the impl- the possible ramifications of what you were doing?
1: I mean the notion that it could happen is all you know it's in the back of your mind but it's almost like it was in the big scheme of things it was such a small thing right and so no i never in a million years you know thought something like this even as things were happening that should have made me realize oh this could be about that i still didn't you know really focus on that Mm -hmm. and uh i mean we never had a chance because from the day my wife and i arrived there there was already a confidential informant working in the office where we were so we were cooked the day we got there wow yeah the fbi already had a confidential informant in there so we would just walk right into it
0: so can you talk about how the arrest went down, how that played out. Cause I know that was, I mean, that was pretty crazy in itself.
1: Yeah. That's another chapter in the book. So we were, we were, we were, um, it was August of 2012. We were going to the airport. We were going to fly back to Montreal. Now we have four children. So our two younger ones were living with us in Santo Domingo mm-hmm. and they were going to school there, the American school of Santo Domingo. My two older daughters We're in school here in university in Montreal. So we put them up in an apartment. We were flying home that summer for three reasons. To uh, obviously see the kids, first and foremost. My youngest, my son who lived in San Domingo, we sent him to summer camp in Montreal. So we were going back to pick him up also and bring him back to start school, you know, at the end of August, September in San Domingo. And the third reason was my high school reunion. I'd never been to one. We were having a 37th high school reunion, I think it was at the time, and because of Facebook, people were coming from everywhere. Right. Those were the three reasons. When I got to the airport, they wouldn't let me get on a plane. I didn't know why. I thought it was related to my permanent residence status, which was about to be. uh, It was about to be issued by the government. I had temporary residence. My wife and kids already had their permanent residence. So I told my wife and daughter, my youngest daughter at the time was 16, to go ahead. I'll figure this out. It must be related to that. I'll call the lawyer and just go and I'll I'll meet you the next day. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, when my wife landed in Miami, the FBI was there and they arrested her in front of my 16-year-old daughter. So uh, that was that. And I found out about it a few hours later. And that's just when the whole thing started. Mm -hmm. Rest was on a major city street, downtown Santo Domingo. Uh, I was driving, I was in the passenger seat. Somebody who worked for me was driving, and they came out of everywhere. Interpol. In black SUVs. There had to be, I don't know, anywhere 10 to 20 of them. I, you know, it's hard to remember exactly. Mm-hmm. It's kind of uh, terrifying. You, Guns drawn. Any,
0: not not to interrupt you, but um do you have any idea why? So why would they let your wife get on the plane? Till this day, I don't know.
1: It's crazy, isn't it? Till yeah. this day, I don't have the answer to that. Huh. Did they want to separate us? Did they, want to, you know, did they want to keep her away from me? I mean, they would have had her away from me anyway if we were both arrested. It didn't make any sense because they could have arrested me on U.S. soil. And they right. would have saved the extradition and all the expenses of getting me to the U.S. It didn't make any sense. It still doesn't make any sense. Hmm. I don't know. I just and don't. It,
0: it could be something. It could have been some stupid government bureaucracy where they couldn't they couldn't get something approved. I think it's
1: probably entirely it's probably entirely that yeah. just a mistake. You know, it's, yeah. it sounds like that's that's you know oh, that's man. typical.
0: So you get arrested then in Santa Domingo. What what happens
1: next from there? I mean, they bring me to uh, they bring me to the Interpol offices where the FBI is waiting for me. And I spent the next few hours in, you know, interview, whatever, with them, and they're trying to get me to give them information. And, you know, I wasn't about to give any information. I just wanted to see a lawyer. They told me, uh, yeah, yeah, you'll get to see a lawyer eventually. And I think when it became clear to them I wasn't going to give any information, you know, they left. Again, in my book, without giving too much away, but... So, yeah, so the FBI said just as they were leaving, you know, Mr. Stillman, uh, you'll be staying with the Dominicans in their jail. And uh, usually most people that have, you know, are subjected to that uh, call us and want to really help within 24 hours and and talk to us. So, you know, I said, okay, And it was kind of like, you know, obviously a sort of threat. Um, And I said, yeah, well, all right. And. I mean, he wasn't wrong about how bad it would be. So uh, from there, they threw me in what I describe as, you know, dungeons. And that's what they are. I mean, they're just, they're just horrific places.
0: Now, I know you probably go into more more detail in the book about things that happened there. Can you can you give a a snippet of uh, of something that did happen to you, or a piece of something that happened to you while you were in the Dominican prison?
1: I mean. I was in several of these, you know, a couple of these different dungeons from over a period of I think it was two weeks or just under two weeks. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the things I describe in the book, I got this shit kicked out of me. I got jumped by four guys <clears throat> at one point. it was over uh, toilet paper and water. And uh, so, you know, that wasn't uh, too nice. But the very first night I was um, put in the first second night. I was put in this, this, you know, dungeon, I saw, um, I saw, you know, a young, I don't know how old, maybe 19, 20 year old kid get beaten to death by another, uh, oh
0: my God. another
1: prisoner. and that was pretty shocking. In fact, after six years of prison and seeing a lot of violence, it's still probably the one thing that affects me the most. Wow. And I could still sometimes thinking about it, you know, still tear up. I guess it's because of the trauma of how shocking it was, you know, to see initially. I mean over time you sort of get more used to stuff like that when 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 stuff pops off in yeah. prison, but that first time it just uh it dug a hole somewhere in my you know, in my soul and it's it's uh it's always hard for me to think about.
0: Yeah, it's that's crazy. To see something like that yeah. um, firsthand. So, eventually you do get extradited to the United States and um you're convicted, right? So what what was your what was your sentence? And were you and your wife were you tried together? Was there a big group of you that were tried together? How, how did that work?
1: So, no, we firstly I didn't go to trial because if I went to trial I'd still be in prison and we wouldn't be having this interview and my book wouldn't be published. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was clear to me, listen, I was guilty of my crime. There was no question about it. So there was never a question of, you know, guilt or innocence. I was, mm-hmm. you know, guilty. I did it. Mm-hmm. And so it was just a question of trying to mitigate the amount of time I got. And uh, so we pleaded, you know, guilty. And uh, we we just, you know, copped out. We took a plea agreement. Uh, I was hoping for, you know, much not much, but lesser sentence, the, the, um, the, um, uh, the, the plea agreement was 63 to 78 months. Normally, when the uh, probation office recommends the low end of the guideline range, usually the judge follows it. In my case, he didn't. So he gave me 75 months. My wife got 48 months. So she was home two years before, before I was. So, yeah, I did 75 months, which, you know, the whole conspiracy was for less than a million dollars. So really, it's by any other standard of any country anywhere. I mean, it's a crazy sentence. I'm not complaining. I'm not looking for sympathy. And I'm certainly not making excuses. But it's just a long sentence. And, and,
0: I mean, just to point out to our listeners, I've, and I've seen you talk about this on, you know, other other people's shows. And, I mean, people who are watching, you know, there, there's, if you're listening now in the audio, there, there's a video version available on, on our YouTube. I mean, you can you can I mean, I can tell looking at you when you talk about this, that it's not something that you're you're brushing off. I mean, you know, you committed a crime. Um, right. So it's, it's 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 very
1: clear. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, I said it, I absolutely deserve to go to prison. You know, I committed a crime. I hurt people. It's, it was, I'm ashamed of it. And I wish I could, you know, I wish it didn't happen. I wish I could take it back. But it's just the, the sentencing and the disparity in sentencing in the just, in in U.S. justice system is just it's out of control. Mm-hmm. I mean, people getting I mean, essentially life sentences for, you know, small drug conspiracies, it's you know 30 40 years
0: there's people in prison still right now even after the first step act after obama's uh commutations and pardons that he did still in prison for life for selling marijuana
1: it's crazy crazy. i i became very good friends with one guy who was doing a a 22 year bid for marijuana and he hadn't sold marijuana when he got arrested for like i don't know it was like seven or eight years Mm -hmm. so yeah 22 years and that's that really isn't much. But you consider in our, in this country in Canada, it's legal. It's going to be it's legal in many states now in the U.S. and it will be legal. And even if it becomes I don't, legal federally, I mean, what are they going to keep these people in prison? Probably. Mm-hmm. Or they'll say, "Well, they broke the law at the time." I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, uh, it's you know, it's a business. Prison's a business in, in the United States.
0: It it definitely is, and uh, I don't know. I know it's more uh marijuana just to use that as an example again is more legal in Canada than it is in the United States, you know, on the state level, some states are starting to legalize it recreationally, but they're not going back and retroactively, you know, letting people out of prison, but <laughs> but they're letting people uh profit off it now that it's legal. So it's 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 a messed up game. Not yeah. to get too far off topic, but I I did want to ask you so when you did end up in the, uh, the MCC in New York, right, you were in prison or you were in the, you were in the same prison that Al Chapo is in right now, right? Right.
1: So he's in, a, he's in an area called 10 South, which is the shoe. It's the mother of all shoes in the United States. It's where they bring the worst of the worst. It's funny because I tell uh, the story in my book. There's a chapter where I actually spent um, a couple of nights there. Because the regular shoe was full, so they brought me into this tent cell, and it was such a bizarre experience. Because the way the, the BOP works, Bureau of Prisons, they it doesn't matter to them that I'm here for a low-level fraud, and I'm going out. The reason I'm in a shoe is because they're taking me out for a colonoscopy. So what they do is they give you the prep and they put you in a shoe because that way you're in isolation, you know, so you can deal with this the prep that you have to think for so the regular shoes. So they bring me to 10 South and they treat me like I'm a nine 11 terrorist. Like I flew a plane into the world trade center. I mean, that's just the way it is. And so I spent two nights there where El Chapo was, but I was on a unit. I was on the 11th floor, 11 North for the majority of my time. Mm -hmm. That's where, you know, like John Gotti was and, and a lot of these high level people. But, um, But, uh, and my wife was on the second floor. So we were in the same building separated though, because, you know, men and women can never be together and can't even see each other. So,
0: so So, how, how long did you have to go without being able to see your wife?
1: Well, I would see my wife on legal, legal co-defendant visits. So I, you know, every few months when the lawyers would come and bring us together downstairs, they would be short visits, you know, maybe a half an hour. Mm -hmm. Uh, And other than that, um, they put me on a restriction so there was a five-day delay on my email to my wife or on any email to anyone. So I could actually send a letter from MCC in New York. The post office was across the street, and she'd mm-hmm. probably receive a hard mail piece of mail before she'd get my email. It was just wow. ridiculous. The whole thing was crazy. And then, of course, I'd call my kids at night, and they'd give me whatever news because they'd speak to my wife you know, a few minutes mm-hmm. before I called, so it was, it was bizarre you just let us email it never made sense but you know that's the and way they do things
0: so with with you and your wife uh, both being in prison i mean i guess you had two of your kids were older in university but did you have family that was that took care of your other kids or?
1: yeah you know my parents are elderly they're still alive thank god and uh, my father just turned 90 my mother's 84 oh, wow! so yeah so when this happened they were still pretty old and they essentially uh Had the younger ones, uh, no, initially all of them moved in with them and uh, over time, my oldest daughter and my second daughter went out on their own, but they all supported each other. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I thank God for it because I had a lot more in that respect. It's funny when you get locked up, but when you're in prison, it just puts, you get a whole different perspective on what's important, right? And I realized I had a lot more than a lot of other guys who were locked up with me just because I had a close family and a supportive family and they were safe, you know, because one thing when you're in prison, one of the worst things you could think about is going to that phone at night to make that phone call home and to get bad news. And I saw it countless times. And, you know, it's a heart, you know, even among men in prison, it's a, it's a gut wrenching thing to see somebody go to a phone, make a call home and find out, you know, somebody died or some tragic thing happened. You can't do anything about it. You can't help. You can't affect it. It's, it's, it's the worst thing imaginable, much worse than something bad happening to us while we're in there.
0: Right. Yeah. All you can do is sit there and think about it, worry about it. Yeah.
1: You know, it's terrible. So thank God I never uh, experienced that.
0: So we were talking uh, during the, our pre-show chat. You were saying that <laughs> I, I'm in Pennsylvania. You said you've been to Pennsylvania. That yeah. you you left. That ICE took you out. So so when you were re- you were released, you were deported immediately to to Canada. Yeah. So
1: I got extradited from Santo Domingo, the Dominican Republic, mm-hmm. into the U.S. And once I was in the U.S., I was there illegally. Even though you brought me here, so I'm there illegally. So now I'm a deportable alien with a felony. So ICE takes over. So the BOP has to release me to ICE. So what's interesting, of course, is that, you know, my my good fortune, I was released on uh, Martin Luther King Day. So on Martin Luther, you know, it was a holiday. So there was nobody from ICE to drive me to the border because it was a long weekend. So I was taken from BOP custody, federal custody, driven by an ICE officer locally to a... County jail that was, uh, designated for ice. And I had to spend one more night in the shoe there. And then the next morning, two ice officers who worked in upstate, uh, Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. drove me, uh, to the Niagara border. So they took me from there. So I got, I actually got, you know, home a day later because of Martin Luther King day, but you know, again, not complaining, (laughs) So how has
0: uh you know having a felony in the United States but living in Canada ha- how's that affected you know your ability to uh, everything that typically affects getting place to live getting a uh, you know place to work or or start a business all that stuff
1: Yeah so look first of all I don't have a criminal record in Canada and there's no technically there's no record of my conviction I don't have Uh, a felony like a foreign conviction on my canadian record this is not a record because i didn't commit a crime here i can't enter the united states because of my felony conviction so i'm not at the age where i'm applying for a job either so you know but the way i dealt with this whole thing is i just as you know i wrote a book about it Mm -hmm. and i wasn't going to spend my life you know keeping a secret or trying to skirt the issue or hope somebody didn't know or didn't find out. I just dealt with it right off, you know, and it's out there. And if it's an issue for somebody, so, so be it. I I don't really care. You know, as far as I know, I committed a crime. I went to prison. We were punished and you know, I'm very remorseful about what I did, but you know, how it's going to affect me, but to, to answer your question realistically, in Canada has had no adverse effect on me. I got a passport, I got a driver's license, you know, I got bank accounts, it, it could be a lot worse if you're an American released from prison. Yeah. And, you know, you can't rent an apartment, you can't open a bank account, Yeah, it's just ridiculous. It's craziness. Know? Yeah, well, again, there's that business, it's designed to set you up to fail so they can bring you back. Right. Sounds cynical, I know, but you believe it after you lived it.
0: Well, that's it's absolutely is. It's uh, they say the prison system doesn't work. Well it's working for it's working for the people who are running it. Yeah, uh, sure. Working for the people who are who are making money off of it. But uh I, w- I wanted to ask you. Uh, speaking of the book, so what? I mean, you talked about you just wanted to get it all out there, but. You know, what motive I guess question number one, like other than that, like what motivated you to to really want to put in the time and the hours to write the book? And question number two, I mean, was it difficult for you? Did you have a background in writing? Was it something that came naturally?
1: You know what? I, I never wrote anything. I mean, I was in business, so I wrote papers. I, I guess you know, in school I wrote it pretty I wrote pretty good, but mm-hmm. I had no idea. I started writing it without even a real plan to write a book. I just I got inspired by something that I read when I was in prison. And so I started writing it and it was kind of like on a lark at the beginning, but you have all this time, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you wake up early in the morning, you got all this time and you kind of just, you got to, you got to keep a routine in prison or else it's, you know, it's, it's the time could kill you. You know, you got to do something. So I started writing and, you know, by the time I got released, I had 34 chapters written of a 72 chapter book. And as it turns out, I'm apparently a pretty good writer and a good storyteller. Um, you know, I wasn't sure. I read it. I liked it. I, I'd let guys in prison that I were close to, I couldn't let them know. I couldn't let the, you know, the uh, the guards know I was writing a book and a lot of the content was about prison and where I was. Because they would come and, in and just destroy it, probably. Oh, yeah. I mean, they would have tossed my, you know, tossed my stuff and they would have taken it away. They would have throw me in a shoe and they would have put me in what they call diesel therapy and ship me all over the country, you know, for sure. So I was always nervous about that. But I would go to a few guys who had been locked up for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd been in penitentiaries and mediums and lows. And I'd vet it with them and they'd come back and they'd go, you know, Canada, this stuff is unbelievable. This this is great. And so I'd be like, really, if you fi- you find it – You know, Mm -hmm. so interesting, a guy like who you've lived way much more than me. So that was the first indication that maybe there was something here. And then when I came home, I'd vet it with, you know, friends and people. I know I'd say, hey, read a couple of chapters and everybody to uh, everybody would say, oh, my God, it's unbelievable. Give me more. Give me more. So I started to get a little more validation. And then ultimately I found an editor and uh, she was really not interested in editing any more books. She lived in Montreal, coincidentally, and I Mm -hmm. came across her through somebody. And so I met her, and she didn't want to know anything about me or my story, nothing. Every time I tried to tell her anything. So I met her for for a coffee. She read the first chapter. She lifted her head. She said, let me get the second chapter. And she read it. And she looked at me. She said, I haven't edited a book in like five years because I'm so tired of editing crap. And she says, I'm going to edit your book. And I looked and I said, I realized, you know, I got something here. Uh, You know, after that, she did the editing. She told me initially it would take her about two months. And after two weeks, she called me and she told me she'd already finished chapter 33 or something. So she really, she says, I can't put it down. The story's crazy. I said, really? She goes, yeah. She goes, listen, you could write. I said, really? I had no idea. So she finished it pretty quickly and I, uh, I released it in um, July. I uh, know September. Sorry, she started in July, September sixteenth. I released the book uh, last year, two thousand eighteen, and two days later, it was number one on Amazon in, wow. in Canada. Yeah, in Canada. So how,
0: how did you? Uh, how would you go about getting it published? Was that hard to do? I self published it. Okay. I actually
1: had a publishing offer from one publisher, but I I sort of quickly did the math and I realized. There's no money in it for me. I mean, I'd have to sell millions of books to actually see any money. And it's, you know, they pay you so little. So I said, I didn't write the book for money. It wasn't a reason I wrote it. I didn't really write it for fame or money. I think if you ask me really, why did you write the book? It was really to try to try to sort of, um, you know, mitigate this veil of shame that I left on my children. And just by telling the story make people understand that you know we're we're human beings and people make mistakes and that's really what it was it was a mistake so that was my motivation for writing it and so it wasn't about money it was never about money you know the fact that it's successful is nice you know i'm certainly happy about it but that wasn't the reason i wrote it and so when it went to number 1 i was like oh my god you know i couldn't believe it it was it was kind of exciting it was it was pretty satisfying you know
0: yeah, well I, I think you published it probably at like the the perfect time because I, well I know in the US and it's probably similar in Canada where, you know, crim- the criminal justice system it's there's just a huge focus on it right now. A lot of it is about reforming it, but people are just really interested in learning about crime, you know, why is it happened, learning about and learning about the stories behind it like like yours. So Yeah. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure what's driving that, but it seems to be universal across the board. So that's, I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, it's the same. Probably the same reason we stop and look at a, you know, a car crash, right? Yeah. People love watching, you know, prison shows and stories about prison, and yeah, I guess it's sort of a fantasy you know, curiosity. And and when they actually get to talk to somebody who lived through it, it's like hard for me to go out with people initially. Anyway, when I came home, where. You know, the focus always – it always became about that, In the next three hours will be talking about my experience.
0: Really? Just people just drilling you with questions?
1: Yeah, I mean, people – yes, people all the time, you know, they want to know. and they're, they're subtle at first in their approach, but if they see – you know, because they're not sure if I'm comfortable talking about it. Mm-hmm. and You know, of course I'm comfortable. I wrote a book about it, so, you know, I don't want to talk about it all, all the time. But yeah. so people have questions. I don't mind answering your questions. So you know, always – goes from one question, you know, three hours later, you know, you're still, yeah. you know,
0: still explain- plus, plus you're a good storyteller. So it's not helping you <laughs> <laughs> people,
1: yeah, get, yeah. people get getting
0: You pull them in and so,
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm guilty of that. <laughs> yeah.
0: But uh, Warren, I'm definitely going to pick this book up and I know uh, my listeners will too. I know they can get it on Amazon. Um, is there anywhere else that and I'll link to that in the show notes page, of course. Anything else you're working on? I know we were talking about you have a Facebook and Instagram. But what are those handles where people can, can check you out? And, yeah, and it's you uh,
1: there? it's uh, at Warren Stellman on Instagram and Warren Stellman on Facebook. And I've got a, uh, a very small YouTube, YouTube channel that I haven't really uh, put much effort into. It's hard uh, you know, to put a lot of time into all these social media platforms. It's, it uh, is. It's, it takes a lot of work, right? And uh, kudos to people who do it, man, because morning tonight. And so, you know, life has sort of got back into a routine, and I've started to pursue some business interests and, you know, working. And, but yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I try to support the book as much as I can. And, and it's available on, on, in all e stores globally, wherever you can buy a book, uh, an e book. And, um, of course, in the States, Barnes & Noble. In Canada, it's available in retail stores. Um, Is there an, else, uh, an audio version? You know, I started recording it. I went into the studio. Mm-hmm. Everybody said, do it in your own voice. Mm-hmm. I don't think I have a good audio voice. <laughs> but I went into a studio. I started recording it. And um, my I expect to finish it. It's just a matter of finding the time. So I think, yeah, I think probably – Within the next six months, I'll release an audio version. Yeah, I bet
0: that would do really well too. Honestly,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. I've never listened to an audio book myself. And but listen, a lot of people ask me. They say, "Listen, I'll buy the audio book. I just don't have time to read." But yeah. when I'm in my car, you know, I'd love to listen to
0: it. Yeah, I mean, I think with audio books, it depends on the content. What it, I mean, you don't want to read something <laughs> real, real dry and like you know some you know something that's not interesting. But something yeah. like your book, I'm sure that would do that would do really yeah. well in audio. It's got a lot of
1: exciting uh, moments. That's for sure. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, Warren. Well, I'll, I'll let you get going, and I uh, just want to thank you again for coming on the show, uh, sharing your story, and like I said, I'll link to uh, your social media and where people can get the book on the show notes page. Any parting words before I let you go?
1: Uh, no, I just you know I, I'd like to say that uh, I think your you know what you do is is admirable. I think it's important. And uh, obviously to bring any kind of focus on, you know, the I think the majority of people, the average person doesn't, you know, the the topic of prison reform or the justice system, I think people just accept for the most part, if somebody's in prison, they deserve to be there. Yeah, most people deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that don't. And, um, and even if people deserve to be there, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be some kind of. There's got to be some kind of rehabilitation. You can't take young kids who come from socio, if you don't mind these parting words, I think it's an important message, socioeconomic backgrounds that are disadvantaged to start with. They never had a chance. They never had a chance. All they could do was go on a street corner and sell drugs to make money. That's all they knew. It's all they were taught. Throw them in prison and don't do anything with them. And just, it perpetuates a vicious cycle. They go back out. They have nothing else to do. Teach them something. Teach them to be a plumber, an electrician, to do something. Rehabilitate them in some way so they have a chance when they get out. And you realize after a while that they don't want them to have a chance because these prisons support too many people, too much industry, too many, you know, uh, rural communities where everybody works at the prison. And it's an economic machine. But it's kind of sad. It's really, really sad. And uh, I, I just think people need to understand that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, 100%. And I know my, my audience is nodding their head along with everything you're saying there because that's what we talk about constantly on this show. I mean, that's yeah. 100% the problem. And our prison systems are not striking the root. They're not addressing the causes of the problem. They're just actually making it a lot worse. But... uh Thanks again for coming on the show, man. Yeah, thank and, uh, you, John. It was a real
1: pleasure. I enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, let's talk again soon.
0: Yeah, we'll talk soon. Have a good
1: night. Okay, you too. Thank you.
0: Hope you guys enjoyed today's episode with Warren Stellman. He's a, a great storyteller and an excellent writer. I highly recommend picking up his book. I'm going to do so myself. I haven't had the chance to read it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, I know that he did share some really incredible um, heart-wrenching stories uh, with you today of his experience, what he went through, and you know I've and Warren talked about it today. I mentioned it. I've seen him on many other shows. Uh, you know, a lot of people will look at what he did and look at really the nature of his crime and say, you know, well that guy, you know, he he should have seen it coming. But this is a guy who's very remorseful for his crime. And one thing I want to make perfectly clear. Uh, which should be clear to anybody who's a sane person that a crime like Warren's first of all, in, in my view, it doesn't make any sense to put someone like that to lock them in prison, especially in uh, you know an MCC type prison and you know he's not a, a violent person. it wasn't a violent crime. But on top of that, at the end of the day, a crime like his, where there's been um, fraud of some sort, some um, manipulation, misleading information, whatever, um, theft of funds in some way, putting someone in prison doesn't make sense because at the end of the day, the goal should be to pay those people back. That is not the goal, though, of our legal system. It's not to get uh, you know these people, their funds returned that they've lost. Um, it's more of from a, a punitive angle. So... That's the way that, you know, laws are written. Or, that's the way laws are written, and the way that uh, that it works, which I, I personally don't agree with. But I mean, with that being said, it's just re- completely ridiculous and insane. Everything that he went to to be to have to spend so much time in uh, the Dominican prison there, it it that really stop me. It stopped me in my tracks. And he was sharing the story about seeing a, a young man getting beaten to death. In a Dominican prison. I know that stuff happens in the, in the United States too. Um, probably happens a lot more frequently in third world countries like the Dominican Republic. And I think it's hard to argue against that, especially um, knowing everything that's been happening there recently, which is a uh, pretty, uh, pretty terrifying stuff. Um, anyway. I digress. Please pick up Warren's book. I will link to it on the show notes page. You can shop through the Amazon link there. You can find the show notes page at linesoflibertycom slash FF <clears> 181. <throat> and that will be a wrap for today's show. Got to keep this conclusion short. Got a bunch of stuff to do. Um, just want to remind you guys, if you like Felony Friday, if you like Lions of Liberty, you like what we're bringing to the table here, and you'd like... Could I say like anymore? I don't know. If you want us to expand this message and reach more people, uh, we would love your help. We would love you to come on board as a uh, as a patron, as a member of our Lions of Liberty Pride. Check out patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty for more information. And thank you in advance for your generosity. That's a wrap for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of Liberty burning.